Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to How to Exit Podcast. Today I'm with Lane Carrick and he's a serial entrepreneur who has started, grown, merged, bought and sold multiple businesses in his career. He's the founder and CEO or was the founder and CEO of Sovereign Wealth Management, the founding shareholder and board chairman of Triumph Bank and a founder and director of BB King's Blues Club. Uh, he's currently resides in Dallas, Texas, where he serves as an instructor in the Southern Methodist University Cox School of Business Leadership Center, where he has received eight techni- uh, teaching excellent awards. And most recently, he's taught mergers and acquisitions as an alternative investments to MBA students. He also serves as a managing director at the 86 Group, a boutique business brokerage and investment bank banking firm. Uh, he's currently representing 15 businesses across the state of Texas as a sell-side advisor, helping them maximize the proceeds uh, received through the sale of their companies. Welcome, Lane. Thank you for being on our show today. Thank you. That was a mouthful of an introduction, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, it's like man, I, t- I got a little tongue-tied there, but, uh, you know. I, I, yeah, I, I gave you too much material. <laughs> My fumble is there for your amusement, so uh, it's okay to laugh at me. I laugh at me all the time. So uh, let's just jump right in. One of the things I always like to do is get the audience connected to you. So uh, kind of your origin story. How did you get started? Where you're from? Uh, tell us something that, you know, kind of connects us with who you are. Sure. Um, um, I'm 63 years old, born uh, in Memphis, Tennessee in 1958. Um, I was, uh, um, I guess from an origin story standpoint, I was uh, an orphan until I was adopted at two years of age. Um, and uh, um, my mother and father, my father was originally from Tyler, Texas. My mother was from Columbus, Mississippi. They uh, uh, built their first home. My father was a home builder um, and uh, built our first home that, that I grew up in the year I was born. Um, he uh, went to high school with a gentleman named Kimmons Wilson. Kimmons ended up founding Holiday Inns, an iconic brand, first uh, brand in the hotel uh, motel industry. My dad became one of the first franchisees of Holiday Inns, and he built a chain, uh, a chain of them uh, across the southeast. And um, it came time for college, and he told me to go to college and study what pleased me. And when I graduated, I'd come into the family business. So I went to college and studied philosophy and psychology because that's what I enjoyed. And my senior year around December, he called me in my dorm room and told me he had great news. He'd sold the business and retired. Um, So uh, that's my origin story is um, uh, a wonderful adoption by loving parents um, who raised me uh, with love and kindness and um, sent me off to college. And then dad sold the business. So I went to New Orleans to watch a Sugar Bowl game. I got offered a job uh, at a at a, a, a Wall Street member firm. I had no idea what a Wall Street brokerage firm was. Uh, they don't teach that to philosophy and psychology majors. Um, I ended up becoming the head of the mutual fund department for a New Orleans-based uh, brokerage firm. Um, came back to Memphis three years later and went to work at a, a Dean Witter Reynolds, another Wall Street firm. 
managed money for clients um, as a stockbroker, uh, which was the term in those days. I don't think they apply that anymore. Um, and I left there in, in, in uh, the, the 1990s and established what really was the first uh, now what we would call multifamily family office in the Memphis area, uh, fee-based. So I, I decided I didn't want to work on the commission model. I wanted to be able to consult clients and, and be paid on top of the table and not for having any incentive to buy or sell specific products to get compensated. Um, and so I built that business, um, uh, uh, Sovereign Wealth Management, um, into a, a national company. Uh, we became the family office for some ultra high net worth families that were founders uh, and or CEOs of major uh, 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 household brands, Mrs. Fields Cookies, uh, Holiday Inns, uh, uh, Harris Gaming. Um, and so I had a career for about 25 years as an advisor to ultra high net worth families. It was a lot of fun. Um, not every day was, but most days were a lot of fun. Um, we, you know, uh, sort of the centerpiece of our, our service offering was writing investment policy statements, helping families decide how to allocate their capital. Um, most of the time it had come out of an operating business and now was liquid and, and, and my counsel to them was they wanted to apply the same discipline to managing that liquid money as they did when they were running a business that produced that money. Um, and we needed to capture that in a plan and follow that plan and amend it as we go as necessary. So we wrote investment policy statements and, and uh, held the hands of, of these wealthy families, helped direct their investments. And I sold that business to an upstream aggregator about 10 years ago, 2001, um, 2002. Uh, that firm was subsequently acquired by Bigger Fish, Goldman Sachs. So I was a little fish acquired by the Bigger Fish, acquired by uh, Goldman Sachs. And um, uh, I spent a few years after that goofing off. Um, and um, my wife and I moved to the Gulf Coast of Florida um, and ultimately decided to move here to Dallas, where we've been for two and a half years. We have a daughter who was a graduate of Southern Methodist University and decided to make Dallas her home. Uh, so we arrived two and a half years ago, and I reintroduced myself to some of the leadership at SMU that I knew previously and uh, started uh, instructing through the Cox School of Business, uh, Business Leadership Center, uh, as you mentioned, teaching mergers and acquisitions and alternative investments in the MBA uh, program. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, keeps me sharp. Uh, these are very smart students, most of whom have graduated, gone out into the workforce, held you know, significant jobs, and now they're coming back to get an MBA. So I, I can't go into the class unprepared. Um, and uh, I joined the 86 group in uh, January of last year. So I'm coming up on a one-year anniversary um, as a business broker. I guess the only difference between a business broker and investment banker is the size of the deal. And, and we kind of straddle the fence um, uh, between those two. Um, but we focus on, on businesses with one to $50 million of annual revenue. Um, and we offer them a highly professional, uh, service that typically is associated with an investment banking firm. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I love tearing apart like you, Ron, I, I love tearing apart businesses and understanding how they make money and what their value proposition is and what their strengths and weaknesses are and helping owners who oftentimes are very good at running their businesses but not necessarily great at the skill set of taking their business to market and understanding how to sell it. So it's interesting. You get to set on the uh, kind of the straddle of both worlds, right? I, I often think that 
the corporate world and the academia world are separated by some barriers that they shouldn't be right yeah. you got um i've got friends you know people i even even call friends here who are tenured college professors writing books on business who have never managed an employee on their life right, right? Yeah. so inside of that what do you see as like you know I'm sure you bring practical knowledge back to the classroom, but as far as the textbooks versus you know, mergers and acquisitions go versus what really goes down on the field and the brokerages and the investment bank, is there any big disconnects that like that needs to be um, like, you know, the textbooks have it one way and it never goes that way. Well, you know, the thing about textbooks uh, and, and this applied when I was in wealth management, I, I believed that the efficient market hypothesis was largely true. Um, as did Ben Graham, who wrote the Graham and Dodd textbook on value investing at the end of his life. He said it doesn't work anymore because everybody does it. Um, so you can't do it anymore. Um, you know, there's in the efficient market hypothesis, it says the market's too efficient for, you know, individual investors to take advantage of misinformation. But it also assumes that all investors are rational. Um, and therein lies the problem. And you have the same, uh, I think, challenge when you take the textbook on mergers and acquisitions, buying businesses, selling businesses, and you apply it uh, at a human level with people that have egos um, and are anchored into belief systems which may be right or wrong. When I teach at SMU, I, I lead off with a story uh, about the Holiday Inns, the company that my dad built franchises for, and I ran the family office for the uh, what became the chairman and CEO of Holiday Inns. And I tell the story of when Donald Trump did an attempted hostile takeover of Holiday Inns because he was mad at him because they got into a partnership in Atlantic City that didn't work out well. Um, so he bought 5% of the stock of the company and announced he was going to take over the company and just strip the assets and sell them off. And Holiday Inns wasn't really uh, uh, appreciative of that. <laughs> of that effort. And so they, uh, the, this battle of egos, you know, ensued and there were a lot of behaviors and outcomes that, you know, a, a rational person would look at and say, why would someone do that? They borrowed billions of dollars against the company and distributed it out as a dividend to shareholders uh, to prevent Trump from doing the same thing, borrowing against the assets. But, um, you know, I find that the textbook is a very good description of how businesses should be valued. You know, discounted cash flow, uh, multiple of earnings, comparable business sales. Um, and then I go to a business owner, had a conversation with one today. Um, every business like his um, that sold over the last year is sold for an average or a median of 3.2 times owner's discretionary earnings. I have that conversation with him. He says, my business is worth seven times um, earnings. Why? Because a friend of mine sold his business for seven times earnings. Well, you know, it's very difficult. I can't go back to the textbook and say, well, a discounted cash flow model, uh, you know, or, or this or that. So you're dealing with human emotions. And again, people are anchored into belief systems. And that's probably my biggest challenge is trying to um, have a dialogue with the seller who comes to the table with a certain perception of their business and its value. Their baby's prettier than everyone else's baby. Um, and their house is, is the best house, you know, on the block. And, um, uh, and to take it from an unemotional place and just say, well, maybe it is. And if it is, the market will respond that way. But here's where the market's going to price your business. And, it's and interesting. 
everything, including businesses, houses, or whatever, they're worth exactly what the market will bear, right? What yeah. the market will pay for them. And right. uh, a lot of times, you know, um, I've had conversations with uh, here recently, uh, one of the local companies here, he thinks he wants 300K. And I basically said, that's just like, it's a small, small business. And uh, he only does, uh, he doesn't do 300K in revenue. He only, he only did about 105K in uh, profit. And I was like, you know, you're a single operator. There's not, there's not really a business here. The only reason I'm interested in it is your customer list. I own a business that, you know, services the same market. And uh, so I worked out an offer for him. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'll get better from it. And I was like, well, call me when spring comes around and you have to fly back to Oklahoma and run this thing because it's seasonal. And uh, we'll talk then. And, uh, but yeah, people derive their, like they, you would never take advice from the guy that just knocks on your door to deliver your box, uh, you know, on, you know, what your house is worth. But, you know, if somebody tells you your, their, their business is worth, you know, 4X or 5X or 6X, uh, you know, as long as it fits the narrative in their head, they go with it. Yeah. Right. So uh, and I think that may be the most challenging part of, of my role is to reset expectations. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the industry success rate um, is, speaks to the fact that uh, brokers um, um, and I'm not impugning the quality or integrity of brokers, but this is an industry stat. Only about 30 percent of businesses that go to market with a broker sell. Um, so seven out of 10, you know, the transaction doesn't go through. I think largely that's because of mispricing, um, unrealistic expectations over the price of the business. Um, and um, so for me, I want to try to hit that head on right up front because we work on 95% of our compensations, a success fee. And so that's the first and hardest part is to try to figure out does a client have a realistic expectation of value? And generally speaking, there's a reset because they almost universally come with an inflated expectation. I don't know how you address that in the marketplace. Um, there's two, I think there's two factors. A lot of business brokers take a listing fee. So yeah. whether they sell it or not, they've made some money. So, um, you know, the scenario and I've, all my listeners have heard this scenario over and over again, but, uh, the scenario is you got a business for sale, you go see broker number one. And he said, you know, you know, he says your business is worth a million dollars and you're like, you'd already scheduled two other appointments. You figured you get a second opinion. You go to business broker number two and say, Hey, the last guy said my business is worth a million right. bucks. Uh, what do you think you can do? And I, I could do one and one and a quarter, 1.25. Right. Yeah. And then by the time you hit the third guy, it's 1.5. And realistically <laughs> the business is only worth probably, you know, 600 to $800,000 to start with. Right. But they've got this false expectation and, and backed up. Not one broker, but three brokers told them it's worth at least a million. Right. When none of them, like, I don't know how it is in Texas. I haven't looked it up. And in the state of Oklahoma, you don't even have to have a license to be a business broker. Right. right. You can buy a business card, write business broker on it, start passing it out, and you're a business broker. Absolutely. Now, some of the franchises have some decent, decent training and stuff like that. I have friends that are business brokers, so I don't want to ruffle their feathers too much. But, uh, if your business broker is you know, requiring five, 10, 15, sometimes even $20,000 as a listing fee, I would really start looking at, you know, and, you, and, you're a, in, in that, and you're in that sub, if you're making less than $10 million a year and they're asking that as a listing fee, I would probably venture to say, uh, be very careful, at least do your own math to figure out 
what the industry says your business is worth before the uh, before you hear what a broker says your business is worth, right? <laughs> That's a great point. I have found myself in the very position you described where I come in to meet with a prospective seller and they've already met with one or two other folks and 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 basically they're they're trying to get you to bid against the other uh, you know brokers, investment bankers to tell you how much their business is worth and um, I think it's a waste of time on both parties' part. Um, it, you know, the, the, but I do think that that, that business brokers like uh, um, you know uh, realtors might very well say, "Well, look, I'll take the listing. He's asking way too much, uh, and then the market will come in and tell him his house isn't worth that, and then he'll lower the price, and I'll I'll get the sale." Um, you know, my experience in business brokerage is it's a much longer and more intense process for us to take somebody to market and deal with buyers. There's so many moving pieces um, that for us to hope that uh, the, the seller has a reset um, and becomes more realistic and they stick with you um, after you played the game with them and told them, validated their expectation. Um, I, I just think it's a losing proposition for both parties. Um, and I suspect if people, if, if brokers were more realistic with the customers and setting expectations, you'd see a much higher close rate uh, on businesses that are brought to market. 30% is a pretty terrible rate. So you probably have a better insight as a college uh, professor uh, teaching mergers and acquisitions than a lot of individuals I have on here. What do you say the current state of the market is for small to medium sized businesses? Um, yeah. So um, first and foremost, definitions, uh, you know, it, when I was in the wealth management business, we used to call people high net worth investors. And now there's high, there's ultra high, there's mass affluent, you know. So for us, um, you know, I think a small businesses uh, as below a million in, uh, um, in, in annual revenue and obviously below a million in profits, that sort of one to 50 space is what we call micro private equity. And then 50 and up is lower middle market, up to middle market, up to and above. And, and so um, the space that's sort of below a million dollars is is more challenging uh, than the space above it, simply because <coughs> it's very difficult for those businesses to get bank financing, um, you know, so. 90% of the deals that, that, that we do, Ron, are done uh, with SBA financing because it's plentiful, it's cheap. Um, the government is doing everything in their power to make capital available to small business buyers um, and interest rates are at historic lows, all the things that make that attractive. And they have a box um, and, and the box is that they're going to loan you, they're going to they're gonna have you model out the business that you're buying. They're going to look at the last three years of historical earnings. They'll recast it in the owner's discretionary earnings, which is the EBITDA of the company, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. They're going to add back owner's comp and they're going to add back legitimate owner's discretionary earnings. So if I run a company and I take my wife to Nick and Sam's every night and run up a $200 tab, uh, arguably that's not a business expense. And if I can convince a buyer uh, that that's exactly what, what was happening, I might be able to add that back. And the SBA wants to see, they want to look in the rear view mirror and see, well, what's happened with this business? And so what can we reasonably forecast the future to look like? Then they're going to allocate an amount for the new owner's comp. And then what's left has to service debt. So they'll loan up to 90% of the purchase price of the business. 
It's historically been 80, but right now in the sort of COVID environment, they'll loan up to 90, but you got to pay the money back. And so there's a principal and interest payment due. Um, and they want to see at least a one and a half to one debt coverage ratio on the cash flow that they model to be left. And they're not looking in the windshield as much as they're looking in the rearview mirror. So one of the other challenges we have is owners coming out of COVID, their business is starting to perform really well. And so what they see happening for the last 90 days is really exciting. But the SBA and the banks are going to work off last year's tax returns, right? Um, so again, financing happens more in the rearview mirror um, than in the windshield, but sellers are looking in the windshield. With that said, there's a lot of capital available for businesses that are of the size where they qualify for SBA loans. And that's above, you know, typically above a million dollars um, in sales, more than a few hundred thousand dollars in a net income owner's discretionary income available to pay compensation to the owner and service the debt principal and interest. When you get below that, you really are looking at a buyer that's probably going to combine cash and seller financing. Um, and that's a different game, um, you know, uh, and oftentimes you might even be able to get a little better price with cash and seller financing because of the seller financing component of it. Um, but right now, uh, what I would say in terms of the market uh, of micro private equity, the one to 50, where we focus is the government's printed a lot of money. That money is out there chasing stocks, uh, pushing bond yields down, buying up Bitcoin, uh, pushing up real estate valuations. It is just, you know, we have asset bubbles, my opinion, uh, across the board. Um, as a result, we're seeing family offices in the state of Texas, according to a recent report, at a record high percentage of their portfolios in direct operating businesses. 20 to 25% of the capital being pushed around by family offices is going there because of the relative valuations of other asset classes. So there's a lot of money looking for deals right now, and there aren't enough deals to quality deals to satisfy that demand. Now, what's not happening, at least not in, in my field of vision, is I'm not seeing buyers just gobble up and push up multiples to some crazy level because they have to satiate their appetite to buy a business. So a lot of deals aren't getting done. Um, but if you have a quality business, you've got, which means in my opinion, you've got clean books and records, right? So if you have three years of good books and records, which a lot of small business owners don't have, um, um, or they've been running the business like a personal bank, which is understandable if you run uh, and you own your small business, but that gets muddy and complicated for a buyer to unravel all of that and understand it. But if you have clean books and records, you have sustained profitability and cash flow. If you're growing, that's a plus, um, uh, and you're bankable, um, then you're going to get a premium uh, multiple right now. So average deal over the last 12 months on biz buy sell and BizQuest are selling at about a 3.2, 3.25 multiple. Um, that's a middle average, right? And that doesn't account for all the variables that go into that, but if you just took the average business, um, and um, I'm, I'm seeing businesses um, sell at higher multiples of that uh, when they are attractive and, and, and otherwise good, good looking businesses. So it's a seller's market right now. I see a lot of advertising going in to do things like I do, which is buying and selling business and teaching other people to do that. 
So you got a lot of new guys coming into this space. And then you have your traditional buyers. They, um, at this realm, the P and E firms and institutional buyers are probably not that active. At least I haven't seen it in that sub $10 million uh, revenue model. They're kind of looking at a a bit for bigger, uh, plays, which is good for us, you know, the guys that want to do what I'm doing, uh, just because we can build something fairly quick to get it above the threshold that catches the radar. But uh, out of these new buyers, one of the big concerns I had, and I wanted to ask you today is when you get a bunch of new people doing something and they really don't have the skills or even potentially, I mean, there's people doing these courses that have never run a business, but they're now out there going to go buy them. Uh, yeah. One of my biggest fears is anytime you get that going on, it happens in real estate, it happens in other stuff. You get a lot of new, inexperienced people that are hurting the business owners, hurting the market. Then legislation comes in and they try to legislate the problem away. Um, <clears throat> do you see any, like at, at, in your brokerage and your investment banker uh, realm, do you see any you know, signs that you're getting a lot of people that are very inexperienced thinking they're going to buy businesses? Sure. Um, we get a lot of inbound calls from people looking for businesses. Um, um, you know, some percentage of that are, is legitimate. As you well know, uh, uh, being here in Texas, we have an enormous uh, population transfer, particularly from California to Texas. They're coming from a highly regulated uh, state government to a less regulated state government. And um, I get a lot of calls from Californians that are relocating here that are looking to buy businesses who have mixed levels of sophistication. Um, I'm always kind of surprised at the relative sophistication of buyers that I even assume are sophisticated. Um, you know, they, they have a, a financial background, but they know nothing about deal structure, deal terms, um, and they, uh, they would benefit from someone like you um, who can walk them through the mechanics of doing a deal. So, you know, in wealth management, I saw that where I had clients that were Fortune 500 CEOs and they knew how to run those businesses. But when they came to their personal finances, they weren't any more sophisticated than a lot of other people. And it, but but oftentimes they suffered from the illusion um, of, of believing that uh, because of their success, they had a greater knowledge that they have. Um, you know, you, I think you, your point is well made. We all watch the GameStop frenzy and, uh, you know, the Reddit trading boards. And, uh, you know, I've been teaching class and had people trading on their, you know, their phone apps. Um, and, you know, uh, the old story of J.P. Morgan uh, uh, back in the frothy stock market era uh, of the 30s uh, before the Great Depression when the shoeshine boy was giving him stock tips and he went, OK, that's it. Um, you know, I'm out. Um uh, there are a lot of people making a lot of money, um, right now that are not doing it because of their intelligence or sophistication. Um, I'm 63 years old in my experiences when that happens, it tends to end ugly. Um, but it probably never ends when people think it will, it lasts longer than most people believe the pendulum just keeps swinging. And my father, who's been uh, deceased for a number of years now, used to be my marker for that. If my father decided to buy stocks, it was time to get out. <laughs> sell, it was time to get in and so i've, I've lost my stock market barometer um it's, but, uh, it's interesting uh i i seen the same thing i've heard that and i believe uh the like when the shoes shine boy starts telling you stock advice it's time to get out yeah. i jumped out of real estate because of the same thing right yeah. when you know you're and i have a company that was teaching real estate investment 
And uh, I used to own the, uh, a part or all of the, uh, the local RIA, the Real Estate Investment Associations. But the problem is, is I, I would look around the room and see 60, 70, 80, sometimes 100, 150 people in the room. And if you'd ask everybody who's, who's bought a house this year, just a few hands would pop up. Like then you say, whoever bought, who's ever bought a house, right? right? But if you ask, if you, you know, just a few hands pop up. And then you ask, who's, out, who, who's put up an offer on a house this year? And like 50, 60 people, you know, half of the room would raise their hand. Well, they're making offers on houses. They have no ability, no knowledge, no nothing to buy. And, uh, you know, it turns out they're, what, they're doing what's called wholesaling, which is a legitimate strategy. But inside of that, what happened was, is the Oklahoma State uh, passed a law this year, actually, have a, as of November. You have to have a license, a broker's uh, or a real estate license in order to, to wholesale real estate. And it's because, you know, too many people are getting in there making contracts on houses they couldn't close and hurting homeowners. The same things in this in this business acquisition, their mergers. If it gets that popular and everybody's graduating high school, taking a five or six thousand dollar course on how to buy businesses and going out and trying to put offers on it as they you're one you're one senator's son or daughter away from you hurt one person the wrong way. And they realize that there's a systemic problem with it. More regulation will come in and, and, you know, it just. It's it's one of those you just got to keep your eye out on the market. Everything ebbs and flows. Um, it, it does. I'm not a fan of overreaching government regulation, and I've been a small business owner. Um, I've bought, sold, I've started, built uh, as you, as per the introduction, um, and I know how hard it is to sit in that seat and meet payroll. And I was in uh, heavily regulated businesses. I ran an S- a Securities and Exchange Commission regulated investment advisory firm. So the SEC would show up on my doorstep and knock and an auditor would come in and live in my office for a, a week. Um, I ran, a, I was chairman of a bank um, and we were regulated by both the state banking commissioner and the Federal Reserve. Um, and um, so I've lived in a highly regulated environment. I'm not here to debate the merits of that. Uh, but what I would say is you're right when uh, you know, I, I think there was a scream and cry for regulation of uh, the trading apps and for you know, uh, uh, everything surrounding the speculative frenzy of the short squeeze around GameStop and the other things. And, you know, you can pass regulations, but people are going to, (laughs) people are going to act in irrational exuberance, um, as our previous treasury secretary called it. Um, and I don't know how you can regulate every law uh, to keep people from acting in an irrational way. And let's jump right back into, um, you know, just buying and selling businesses and, and buying and then building them and, and, you know, staying in this, staying in this lane. Um, Where do you see the market going? I I see, I see a large aging population of baby boomers, uh, one generation ahead of me, maybe two generations ahead of me who are still sitting in the seat of businesses with no succession plan, no way to, no plan to exit. And, um, we're starting to see that now there's a lot of businesses that just close, right? They, they work until they don't work anymore and they close. Right. Um, what do you see as a, a way to get the word out to those business owners that there is this secondary market for people who want to, to be part of what they built? That's a good question. Um, first and foremost, I agree with you. The demographics are, 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 uh, are factual and objective. There is a, a very large population of people who are at retirement age who own and operate businesses without uh, a, a logical succession plan. And, and so they're either going to sell their business or they're going to close it. 
Um, and um, uh, so that's a given. And I expect over the next couple of years, the next several years, uh, the next decade, probably, we're going to see that trend uh, continue to, to develop and we're going to see more and more businesses coming to market. And it creates a great opportunity for people that have the skills um, and the humility, uh, <laughs> you know, and the energy uh, to step in and take over that business and operate it. Um, in terms of helping business owners understand uh, their choices, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm sort of of the opinion that um, somebody running a business uh, is going to ask their friends. Uh, when I was in the wealth management business, 90% of my clients came from referrals from their friend, neighbor, accountant, attorney. Um, and I'm presuming most small business people have accountants, attorneys, um, you know, friends that may own businesses. And that's how they get referred to me and that's how they get referred to other business brokers. Uh, so I'm not much of a resource in terms of how we could better educate them. Um, what I would say is that once they make that decision to take their business to market and that they should interview multiple brokers, not for the purpose of having a bidding war on who will, who will offer them the highest price because the business broker isn't buying your business, right? Um, uh, and a good business broker is going to tell you what the mar what they think the market will bear. They're going to tell you what, what businesses like yourself for um, and, um, uh, and, and keep you from setting unrealistic expectations. But when I was a young stockbroker at Dean Witter Reynolds in 1980, you know, there were 20 brokers in the, in the office and somebody would walk in and ask for a broker and there was a system of uh, of you know how they got referred within the office, and there were 20 people doing 20 completely different things, and the outcome that that poor guy or lucky guy uh, walking in the door asking to talk to a broker got could be the worst possible outcome, or they could get with somebody that was trustworthy and reliable and took care of them and used a financial planning model, etc. But it was the Wild West, and it's probably a little better these days. But if you're going to go pick a, somebody to invest your assets, you would probably want to go talk to two or three and try to get some understanding of, you know, what what is your process and, and how much do I pay you? Are there any hidden fees? Um, you know, what can I expect? How long will this take? Who are my buyers? How do you find them? Um, and I find that people don't really ask a lot of great questions, which means they don't know the questions to ask. Um, and I'd add, I'd add a question on, on how much is my business worth? And then the person that tells them it's worth the most gets the business. You know, I'd, I'd even lean on that question, right? If somebody, if a business broker tells you your business is worth X, I would venture to say the business owner should say, well, how did you arrive at that number? Yeah. A business owner should really understand the mathematics of which the broker come up with the number that they're presenting. Uh, the reason behind that is, is like sometimes those relationships don't go where they're supposed to. I was actually on the phone a few weeks ago with a business owner and he says, well, the business broker says I'm worth 1.5 million. I was like, great. You should have taken that check. Yeah, exactly. And he says, well, he wasn't buying it. I said, ah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Did you ask right. him how he did his math? Because I want to see what model he's using to evaluate your business. Yeah. No, I turned in my financials and stuff. And I told him that, you know, so-and-so said my business is worth that. And he told me he could beat it. And that's how he came up with it. I said, so you don't have any formal offers 
at that price. And this is longer into the conversation. My first response is always, always, somebody says, my business is worth 1.5. I was like, great, let's see how we can get you there. Right. Cause yeah. I haven't seen anything at this point, you know, maybe we can. And when he didn't like the story of how we were going to be able to get him there, I was like, Hey, you're going to have to go back, grow your business for a couple more years. You're yeah. about halfway there. Right. You know, you really want 1.5. You're about halfway there. Um, like not only am I not interested, I don't think any of the people I know, and I know a ton of guys who are buying businesses right now. I'm in multiple networks. I run masterminds and stuff that, uh, uh, where we help each other do this. I don't know anybody who would be interested in paying you what you're asking for your business. So, if, you, you know, when I promise to tell you how to get there, my answer is you got to go grow your revenue almost two X, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Ron, that's, that, that's a story that uh, resonates with me. I've got that exact situation right now. Um, I had a conversation with a prospective client. They said, my business is worth X million. I said, how'd you come up with that? They said, cause we take X out of the business every year. And I said, well, if you take X out of the business every year, that's a 3.25 multiple. That's not an unreasonable request. I got the financial statements. They didn't take that out of the business. Um, it's a 6X multiple. Um, so my response will be, it's not going to sell at 6X. Um, the market's 3X, uh, maybe maybe somewhere between three and four. Uh, so you need to go back and grow your business for a few more years. Uh, but this is a retirement trade. I think in the relationship with the seller and maybe the most important decision, business decision, financial decision they're going to make in their lifetime to take a relationship on a false premise, which is the business is worth more than what you know the market will bear, um, is an injustice to uh, the seller and it's an injustice to you. Um, and again, 30% of these businesses are selling, 70% are not. So just look at the outcomes that the industry is experiencing. So I was on the uh, on the podcast, I guess it was last week or the week before with an Australian broker who um, he has a very high close rate. And, and I, we were chatting about it. He, they close. I want to say I think he, I don't want to get his number wrong, but I think it was close to 200 businesses a year. And they're in multiple wow. locations and yeah. they have 30 or 40 uh, uh, people in his office that help between 35 and 40 people that help him do this. So it's not a small operation. He's got an office in Hawaii now. He's from Australia. But uh, it's it's a fairly large organization. I was like, well, how do you do that? He says, I turn a lot of them away because they don't like the valuation to come up with. But the reason I can do it is I value it in such a way that I know it'll sell. Right. I, I, I look at three or four different models. I, I, I look at the industry and what they're paying. Um, he goes, I have a, I've been doing, he's been doing this for 18 years. So he goes, I have a huge list of people who buy these things. I know what they buy them at. So, yeah. um, and uh that, that's really the nature of it is just your business is worth what the market will bear. I, I see people getting the six X's and stuff, but it's really rare. It's kind of a lottery, especially small business. It's yeah. usually a strategic person, meaning a competitor or somebody in your line of business bought you to bring in your engineers, your team, your something to grow their business. They're already, they're already large. It's what we refer to as a strategic purchase. Right. Right. Yeah. They're just, it's a, uh, um, other than that, most of your institutional buyers, most of your uh, local buyers, uh, they're just not going to do that. It's just not, you know. Well, it's a, I mean, you think of it as just an internal rate of return calculation, right? Mm -hmm. So when, um, when I was buying businesses myself um, mm -hmm. and operating them and doing a roll up in the wealth management space, you know, if I'm paying 3x on, uh, uh, on cash flow of a business I'm buying, you know, if I can maintain that cash flow, uh, then I'm getting a 33% return on my capital. 
um, you know, my required rate of return to invest in an illiquid operating business was 25% or more. Um, um, otherwise, I could put the money into other asset classes, small cap stocks, micro cap stocks, other things where I had some measure of liquidity or marketability and I could sell. Uh, I'm not going to make 25%. But to me, uh, I've always looked at the universe of investing as stacking, you know, risk uh, um, premiums on top of the risk free return, which right now is what, one and a half percent or something crazy because it's the T-bill rate. Um, and so, you know, if you want me to take my money and put it in a government bond, I'm going to require a very low rate of return. If you want me to put it in Microsoft, um, that's pretty good, you know, credit. Um, I'm going to require a little higher return. But, you know, when you get out of here to a small operating business where the failure rate is uh, is high, <clears throat> you're going to I'm going to have to make an attractive rate of return. So to me, I, you know, I would turn it to the to, to the seller and say, well, look, if you were going to invest your money, if you didn't own this business and you were going to go buy a business, what rate of return would you require uh, for buying your buying that business and putting your capital in it? <clears throat> well, if it's 20 percent, that's five multiple. You know, if it's 33 percent, that's a three multiple. Uh, it's four multiple at 25 <clears> percent. I don't think people should invest capital in direct operating businesses, you know, without expecting you know, a reasonable rate of return. So the multiple, and you're right, uh, for a business that could, <clears throat> there were wealth management firms where I knew I could go in and close the office um, and, 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 and let that staff go and pull those assets under my existing platform and I could reduce the cost and increase the cash flow and I'd be willing to pay a premium for it. Um, <clears throat> so there are synergistic buyers that'll pay up, um, but you know, um, that's, not the typical case. Uh, you brought up a point in there. It was like the re internal rate of return. The um, one of the investors locally asked me. I uh, said, you know, he used to be a private investor for me in the real estate space, and he says, well, what would be the rate of return for buying businesses? And I said, well, usually at least thirty-three percent. He yeah. goes, that's that's not real. That's not that's not achievable. I said, it is. I said, the reason you get less than that on other transactions is you're trading the liquidity, being being able to be liquid for a higher rate of return. You Absolutely. buy a small business, it's not nearly as liquid. It takes time to, you know, if you decide you want the money back out, you got to put it on the market, market it, sell it, and you got to be running it well while you're doing that or you'll, it'll depreciate. So, you know, but it, it is very common to get those type of rate of returns inside of a business. And, well, uh, and you can leverage those returns. So we'll go back to the SBA analysis. So let's say you and I decided to go out and buy a company making a million dollars a year and we could buy it at a three multiple. So we pay three million for it and we put down three hundred thousand dollars and we borrow uh, two point seven million uh, from the SBA on the 90 percent loans they're doing. And we qualify for it. And the business qualifies. Um, so. Now we have 300,000 of equity in the business um, and it's cash flow in a million dollars a year. We're not going to direct, um, you know, some percentage of that to service the principal and interest payments on the debt. Every month we pay down principal and interest, our equity in that business grows just like the mortgage on your house. So you grow the business, uh, you pay down the debt. Three years later, you turn around and sell the business. Um, and, you know, if you sell it at the exact same multiple, um, you've gotten a much higher return on your equity. Now, in terms of at-risk capital, um, you know, the SBA is going to require that you personally guarantee and pledge. And so, 
you know, uh, you have you have the risk, uh, but but you know, um, in a lot of PE firms, there is a multiple expansion run between small businesses and 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 lower and middle market businesses. Um, so the typical small business is going to trade around three. The typical middle market business is going to trade at six. So when we do see PE firms dipping into our space, what they're doing is they're looking to take a platform and start bolting on businesses so that they can aggregate and get to middle market and then just bank the multiple expansion, right? So wow. I buy businesses at three and then I turn around and sell them at six. I haven't necessarily improved the business. All I've done is position the business to a different buyer who has a lower return requirement. Um, uh, so um, that game uh, plays as well. I mean, it's very, it's one of the, the ways that the private equity and the whole, and some even the family offices do it to buy, to play that arbitrage of different levels, right? To buy up a bunch of $10 million companies because once they cross, you know, or $5 million, $10 million revenue companies, because once they cross that $25 million, they're at the peak of that multiple or they can, you know, you know, either take it public or, you know, move into a sell it to a public trading that's getting even higher multiple and receive full value. They're, they're playing the arbitrage game. Yeah. And, and the upstream public companies that you're referring to, they're playing the game too. They're buying companies at 10 X and, and they're trading at 20 X, you know, and All uh, long. Yeah. You know, so it's a creative uh, to them as well. So, um, uh, yeah, there's always the bigger fish out there. Uh, uh, I guess until you're Jeff Bezos, uh, right? There's always the, the bigger fish out there to gobble you up. Um, but, you know, for small business owners, if they really want to turn it into something special, they could aggregate businesses um, at a certain acquisition strategy and then flip them at a higher, higher multiple. Um, but at the end of the day, just buying a business at a reasonable multiple and putting leverage on it and then running the business so that you don't lose the cash flow that existed when you bought it. Now, if you're buying a company that's not making money and it's turnaround, that's a whole different deal. That's a whole different but, game. Yeah. You know, but I, my counsel to people that want to buy a business for the first time is buy a business that has stable, positive cash flow. Um, and, um, you know, it's a lot harder to turn a business around than it is to maintain. And it's hard enough to maintain. So you said something right there that caught my attention when you're counseling people that want to buy a business for the first time. You've been doing this longer than I have. You've been doing this probably longer than a lot of the guys that listen here. Um, what would you say, what would you wish like you knew, like what do you know now that you wish you had known when you started the buying and selling and merging and um, like what's one good takeaway that you could tell wow. somebody who's thinking this? Well, first and foremost, I'm, I still learn things regularly. Um, so I will tell you at 63, my dad told me when I was 21 that I was too smart for my britches and the, and, and that the older I got, the smarter he would look. And he was absolutely right. I was Leo, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio in the bow of the ship. I was, you know, king of the world. And then uh, the older I get, the more I realize what I don't know. Um, I just think you have to, uh, maybe my biggest takeaway is, um, is, is recognizing uh, overconfidence. I, I think a lot of people approach investing from an overconfident position. And, you know, they buy Bitcoin at 20,000 and it goes to 22 and, and they think they're smart. Uh, and I'm not picking on Bitcoin. I'm just saying that, you know, um, so it's one thing to buy a business. It's another thing to operate the business successfully. It's another thing to sell it successfully. These are complex things. 
Um, I think you should approach it with some humility. Um, and, and I think you should really uh, surround yourself with people. Uh, uh, maybe if there's one takeaway, one of the things I always do now is I take anything I do to somebody that I've got a few people in my network that will shoot holes in anything. If I bought Microsoft to them as a, a startup, knowing what it's going to turn into, they'd find a reason not to invest in it. So I really try to poke holes in, in everything. You never see a pro forma that shows a business losing money. Um, you know, when you're buying a business, you, 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 you plan and you think about how you're going to go in there and improve things and, and grow the business. Most business owners are a lot smarter than we think they are. We look at their businesses and we go, well, why didn't he do this? And why didn't she do that? And, um, so I think just approaching things from a position of humility, uh, respecting, um, you know, what, what's been built, understanding the challenges, surrounding yourself with people that you consider to be good, honest advisors that will give you uh, honest feedback, uh, inviting people to attack your assumptions um, in, in the processes that you're involved in. Um, and being open-minded about it, uh, I, I'd say those are kind of life lessons that might apply across the board. Um, but, you know, the, the art of buying businesses hasn't changed much. I, I show a clip from the movie Wall Street, the original uh, Wall Street, uh, with uh, Martin Sheen and, and uh, Michael Douglas, um, where um, uh, he's at the board meeting for the company that he's trying to take over, and it's the greed is good speech that he gives and um you know uh part of my instructing um on mergers and acquisitions i, I talk about how what i've observed uh, with a 35-year career in investing in financial markets at a fairly high level um you know what i learned was that there the market is populated by extraordinarily smart people smartest people that you can find coming out of harvard and yale and princeton and mit are calculating things all day long and investing based on, you know, their analyses. It's really hard to think that you're smarter than the rest of the market participants, that you're going to outsmart them on a daily basis. Uh, but markets work. Uh, they arbitrage away inefficiencies. Um, and um, uh, uh, that, that uh, there are certain core things that go with buying a business. You need to do your homework. You need to... Uh, examine the business, ask tough questions. You really need to understand the business as well as possible. Um, you need to uh, forecast out, you know, your what you think is going to happen. You need to figure out what can go wrong with it and model what happens if those things go wrong. Um, you need, an, if you're particularly starting out, you need a good lawyer um, and you need a good advisor, it could be your lawyer or a good advisor like yourself or someone that can help them, you know, know what they don't know and, and guide them. I did a deal when I was 24 years old. The first deal I did, I bought a medical x-ray equipment, hardware and film uh, business. So they sold the hardware, they sold the film, and, but they made all their money cleaning the machines because the, 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 uh, the, the imaging, of course, now it's all digital, uh, the, the film left a silver deposit and, and you would go clean the silver deposit and <clears throat> we made all our, we could give away the equipment and, and the film if, if they would just pay us to, to clean the machines. But I'm 24 years old. I think I'm 10 times smarter than I am. I've never done a deal. But we had a really good experienced lawyer uh, who was probably my age now then when I was in my 20s. 
and he'd been around the block a few times. And we got to this impasse in the deal where the buyer, the seller wanted us to buy inventory that hadn't sold in five or six years at what he called face value. What had no value, right? It was completely worthless. Um, and he told us, he said, look, there's price and there's terms and the, uh, the seller sets the price and you set the terms. So let's put a term in there that we'll pay in face value, uh, but we'll pay it to him as the inventory actually sells. Um, and so to me, I was all locked up in this fight uh, over, you know, the issue of the inventory. And he had a solution, uh, which was uh, a term, you know, it was a, a structure, a deal structure. So I see a lot of deals fall apart and it's easy for deals to fall apart because the buyer and seller, by the time the deal gets done, they're typically exhausted. You know, from the time somebody takes their business to market till the time they sell it, it can be six months to a year. They probably had a couple of people poke around and, and do due diligence. They're tired of answering questions. By the time somebody submits a letter of intent and it gets executed, there's usually a 30 to 45 day due diligence period. Then there's an asset purchase agreement. Uh, and then there's the bank financing. And there are 50 things that can go wrong, right? Um, uh, a, a sentence in, in, a, in, a, in a lawyer document in, inside a purchase agreement that you know, one side or the other doesn't like. So it's hard to get deals done and patience and, and humility and being surrounded by people that have more experience than you do that can counsel you and say, hey, this is important. This isn't, um, you know, right. uh, or there's a solution to this. So, you know, take a deep breath and let's go find that solution. I agree. What's the what's a good way if somebody wants to reach out to you? What's the what's your preferred way for them to contact you? Yeah, so I do email really well. Um, um, I get enough voicemails and text messages where I get way behind on those, uh, but I'm really good at email. So my email is Lane, L-A-N-E, at the 86, 86 is a numeral, the 86 group.com. I'll put and that up better, right here. For better or worse, that pops up on my cell phone and all other media 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, and I'm responsive to it. Is that the Not right one? Four hours a day, seven days a week. I put that on the screen. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. Oh, cool. So for those of you guys who are uh, watching this live on the video side, it's on the screen. And for uh, for uh, for the purpose of not getting spam into this folder, I will not put it in the text description because the text scrapers will feed that into spam. So you'll oh. have to handwrite that down. So uh, I appreciate having you here today. Oh, I appreciate God. everything. This was kind of an interesting uh angle on things. Uh, we, we talked a lot about leverage buyouts, the LBO model where we're using the bank to finance it, which is something that uh, not very many of the guests I have do that method. So uh, most of us, uh, uh, we either we either have funds or uh, we just we just haven't went down the bank route yet. So maybe it's the, the crowd I'm hanging out with. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate the, the knowledge in that realm and uh, look forward to uh, having further conversations with you and learning more with uh, with you. And uh, I'm always looking for stuff in Texas too. So uh, I, uh, myself, and I, I know some people that are looking for stuff in Texas. So uh, I wouldn't yeah. mind uh, hearing about some of the business. Uh, I actually have two ladies right now who are looking for construction businesses in that realm. So in Texas. Yeah, that's going to be a booming industry. Um, I don't have a construction business. I have an electrical contractor in DFW that's growing pretty dramatically and the owner is ready to move on to other things. And uh, I was just pulling uh, data today. And, you know, the story on Texas is just so incredible right now. 
Um, you know, Dallas Fort Worth gained 1.2 million in population over the last 10 years. Uh, and Cushman Wakefield released a study recently that said that they thought the DFW Metroplex would be the fastest growing Metroplex over the next decade. So it's a great story um, uh, for, for Dallas Fort Worth. It's a great place to be. Um, uh, but uh, I'm about to uh, learn about a lot about tiny homes. We have a listing, a new listing for a tiny home manufacturer. Um, uh, so I don't know a lot about it. There's a TV show I've seen. Um, <laughs> it's a thing, obviously. Um, it is. Yeah. Um, they're, I think they're overpriced. I'm a real estate investor by previous trades. So uh, I got a great deal of mine. Uh, uh, just a family who uh, had one custom built and her husband got deployed overseas and they weren't going to be able to live in it. So it was three quarters of the way done. I had the crew to finish it up. So I pretty much got it for what they had into it. And as soon as it was done, it's worth twice, way, you know, oh, at wow. least twice what I pay for it. But uh, yeah, I, I'd be interested in hearing about that. I, I don't know where the market is on it. It was really hot for a little while. Yeah, and really. then, um, you know, it kind of cooled off. Uh, I think it's, it, it appears to still be moving well for me because I'm in all the communities. Like I'm in all the Facebook groups and stuff for tiny houses. So one of the hardest problems that uh, they have is when you move them around. Um, they're, it's hard to find lots and land that allow them to have it on there. Uh, wow. Most of the building and coding of land has them listed as an RV. Uh, so the same, the same, what am I looking for? Zoning or code, code enforcement type of stuff that would allow a tiny house to be on the house overlooking a lake would allow somebody to move a $2,000 camper on there and live out of it. Yeah. Right. So they yeah. didn't, there's nothing in the, the code that dis, that's, that separates the two. So it's really difficult. Uh, uh, sometimes when we're traveling, we end up having to park at RV parks to, uh, to yeah. live in the tiny. So, yeah. Well, Ron, thanks for having me on today. And thanks for the work you do in supporting people to make better decisions in the yeah. small business world. Uh, I'm a broker. I work on commission, but I, I really like to see people make good informed judgments about what they're doing and do yeah. things the right way to give them the best chance for success. And, you're in the same same spot trying to help people make good decisions. So I appreciate what you're doing. And if I can ever be a resource for your guest, uh, welcome that opportunity. And I hope to stay in touch with you. Awesome. Now we're going to end this now. And thank you everybody for joining us. And uh, Lane, stay on here for just a second. And I'll okay. chat with you afterwards. Uh, thank you very much. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurial Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind.